0: How are we doing today? All right, first first race of the year. Who knows where that is? Daytona. It's in February. So right now, I want you to imagine, we go back to February, you're not in the cold Oshawa weather, you're at Daytona where it's hot and sunny. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're not there as a fan in the stands, but you're there as the driver. You got your race suit on. You're behind the stage, nobody can see you from the grandstands, and as you look around you see all the famous drivers you see on TV every Saturday or Sunday. You see the TV cameras, the radio announcers, everybody getting last minute sound bites, things like that. Then the NASCAR officials line you up according to your qualifying position. So as you're standing in line, you're waiting to go up on stage, you're talking a little bit to the other drivers, you're getting excited for the day. And so they call your name, you go up on stage, you're in front of 140,000 wild NASCAR fans. They give you a big wave. But you know what? It's not even that loud, because nobody's ever heard your name before. So you give the big wave. You shake hands with the dignitaries. Then you come off stage, and then you might be met by the motor racing outreach chaplain. He'll wait for the next driver to come down. He'll say a short prayer. Now you walk pass all the stands all the fans that are down on the infield they're all roped off you shake hands you sign a few autographs you're out on pit road you're walking down pit road the sun is shining the cars are sparkling cars are on each side of you and then there it is there's your car it looks just like the suit you're wearing your name's on top of the door your number's on the side of it so you get a few minutes to stand there while they make the final announcements you start to re- You know, stretch out a little bit. You're going to be in this car for a couple hours. You stand beside your car, and the whole place goes quiet. And somebody will lead in a prayer. And while he's praying, you're thinking, man, I can't believe it. I'm at Daytona. How long have I waited to be here? This is the biggest race of my life. And you're thinking, man, how fortunate I am. A dream finally coming true. But then you also remember you're going to be going almost 200 miles an hour with 42 other cars that all want to win and all want to be in front of you. <laughs> and you've seen the wrecks on TV. And so you're just thinking, Lord, keep me safe. And then they start to sing the national anthem. And you're getting excited, more and more excited. The fans are starting to get louder, loud as the singer. You get to the end of the Star Spangled Banner, three fighter jets soar across to the top of your head, shaking the ground you're standing on. You climb inside that car, you got to put all the seat belts on up through the middle of your legs, cross your hips, you put the Hans device on, just like a, a carbon fiber horse collar, you put those seat belts over top, buckle it all in, pull it tight, and in the quietest, quietness of the moment, you start feeling that heartbeat. Not because you're nervous, you've done this before, but you're excited. You're excited to be here. And that silence is broken by the most famous words in auto racing. Gentlemen, start your engines. So you crank over the engine, you give it a couple shots of gas, you hit the ignition, boom, 750 horsepower comes alive. You give it a shot of gas, you feel the vibration of the motor, no offense to our band, man, they're awesome, but now you got music to your ears as you rev up that gas. So you sit there for a few minutes while the motors warm up, and then you start heading out down pit road. So you're going two by two, bumper to bumper, down pit road, out onto the racetrack, following that pace car at 55 miles per hour. As you go into turn one, the first thing you notice is the car in front of you. The back end of his car just slips a little bit, and you have an automatic instant reaction to turn the car a little bit to the right. The problem is at 55 miles per hour, on that really steep banking, your car is hardly staying stuck to the racetrack, and it's like it's already wanting to slide down. Now that won't be a problem in a few more laps. As you go down the back stretch. You tell you, they tell you at the driver's meeting that you can only go 55 miles per hour. That means you're going to be going almost 200. When you come off turn four, you're going to have to get slowed down to 55 miles per hour. One problem. No speedometer. So what you've got to do is you look at your RPMs on your tack. You follow real close to the cars in front of you who's following the pace car who's going 55 miles per hour. You check the tack. You're in second gear. You're revving 4,000 RPMs. You hit a little button on your switch. That's your radio button. And you tell your spotter and your crew chief what your RPM reading is and what gear you're in. So now you've got a spotter, and he's as high as you can get at Daytona International Speedway. He's on top of all the stands, on top of all the suites. He's up there with all the TV cameras. And it's his job to keep you safe for the entire race as you navigate around this two-and-a-half-mile racetrack. So he can see the whole track from there, and he can see your car. The problem is, from his vantage point, your car looks about this big. But it's his job to keep you safe, to watch for debris on the racetrack, to watch for oil-blown motors, wrecks, watch guys trying to pass you and make a run on the inside or the outside of you, watch what's going on in front of you, help call the race, and help you get to the winner's flag. So, as you're going down for your second lap now, still warming up, you've got your pit road speed, you've checked in with your spotter, you've checked with your crew chief, you thanked all your crew for working for two months during the winter to get this car ready and get you in the race, and now you're coming to the green flag. You're in the middle of turns three and four. You got your foot on the brake and the foot on the gas. You want to stay tucked up under the bumper of the car in front of you. You want to get the RPMs high. You want to get a good start. And as you look out the front windshield, you look as far ahead as you can see, and the view's blocked by the roof of the car. You've got such a steep banking, you can see the car in front of you. You look in the rearview mirror and NASCAR, put all these big spoilers on the car to keep you... The speed's down, keep the car planted to the racetrack. So as you look out the rear spoiler, all you can see is the roof of the car behind you. Now the car beside you, he's right there. He, he went up, qualified just about as fast as you did. But you got a, a seat right here. you got your Hans with your helmet hooked to it. you got your full face. And you can't hardly see the car. But you can hear his motor running. And you can hear the vibration of the, on, the, on your door. So there's 43 cars in this race right now. And you can see about two of them. And so you stop and you think for a minute. A couple days ago we had qualifying, and there's 54 cars here. Now there's only 43. So that means there's 11 other drivers already flown home, back at the hotel watching on TV, or moping around the garage area with their head down, because they weren't fast enough to qualify for the race. But that's not on your mind, because you're one of 43 at the world center of speed, coming off turn four, getting ready to take the green flag. You hear the mic key, get ready, get set, here it comes, green flag, and you just hear Daryl Waltrip in the mind say, boogity, 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 let's go racing, boys. You slide off the brake, you hammer down on the gas, and the car starts to accelerate. Slow at first, 3,000. 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 RPM, 6,500, 7,000. You grab the shifter, you pull it out a second, and you slam it into third. You don't use the clutch. You don't let off the gas. Time is of the essence. you got to keep accelerating hard. So now you're accelerating again, a little bit slower this time, because you're in third gear. You're picking up speed. You're coming through the tri still staying in position. Two by two, passing the start-finish line, coming down into turn one. You pull it down into fourth gear. You're down to about 4,500 RPMs. The motor's lugging, trying to gain speed. You go to turn one for the first time and you realized it rained last night there's no rubber on the racetrack. Your tire pressures are low. Your tires are cold. And as you drive into the corner, you're watching the car in front of you wave. You're watching them go like this, and you automatically you start sawing on the steering wheel, holding onto to that car, keeping your foot to the floor. And you're accelerating all the time through one, through two. You come off two, and you're still accelerating. It's two wide, three wide, four wide. Everybody's already wanting to win the race, and you're trying to find the right line and get in the, in the, in the quick draft you're already going probably close to 165 and still accelerating. So you look for the guy in front of you, and you're stucking up behind him, and then all of a sudden you're feeling the, the draft of the cars beside you, pulling you to the right. Another draft coming to the left, you're pulling to the left, and so you're turning left and right just to go to a straight line. You're coming into turn three now, you're almost at 185 miles per hour. As you turn off the straightaway into the corner, the racetrack falls out from underneath you, the car slams down, your rear end says, ''Let off the gas!'' Your head says, no way. You hold on to the wheel, you hold your breath, you keep the foot planted, you suck right down on that yellow line, you pull up behind the car in front of you, and all of a sudden you're getting the toe, you're getting the push, and you're moving along. The guys on the outside are going high, and you're getting the first position of the day. That's lap one, 149 to go. (laughs) you believe that you get paid to do that? <laughs> so I was born in Oshawa, Ontario, and uh, lived here for a while. Then we moved to Hampton, and um, when I was a kid, I got good rewards for doing well in school. Remember those days? <laughs> so this one particular summer, I came home, and there was a yellow Suzuki RM75 motorcycle. We lived on 10 acres out there. I was so excited to be able to ride that bike all summer. But mom and dad wanted me to go Bible camp first. Bible camp? I got a motorcycle. It's the summer. <laughs> so I remember going to Camp Samac, I think it was. And I don't remember everything that went on there. I knew I, I caught a couple little sunfish. And, uh, but I do remember just after lunch one day, sitting at the picnic table, and the counselor goes, Randy, are you a Christian? So you got to think fast. Well, I go to church. I got my own Bible. I remember seeing my mom and dad get baptized. I know a few songs. I've been in the Christmas play. So, Kid in Canada... Watching a couple races on TV a year, Daytona 500 and Indy 500. Something about watching that Daytona 500 just put a fire in me that I wanted to be a race car driver. So I think I was about 16 years old. You go down Taunton Road, and when you look off to the left, just before you get to, um, into the city there a little bit, this car sat in the mud and snow all winter long. So spring was coming, and my neighbor and I went, and we knocked on this guy's door. Simon (laughs) Beerstakers. And we asked him if we could buy that car. We got him down to a thousand bucks, so that was five hundred dollars each. We pulled it out of the the snow, we brought it home, and we didn't really know too much about racing. It was my neighbor Jeff and I. And so uh, we put air in the tires and charged the battery and put gas in it, maybe changed the spark plugs, put an air filter on it. We got a can of yellow caterpillar paint, got the rollers out, and we rolled her yellow. (laughs) You guys remember the Dukes of Hazzard? (laughs) Put one on the door. (laughs) So off to to Westgate Speedway we went. So we had a coin toss to see who would get to race the first race. Actually, I won the coin toss the first night. But I was a little nervous, because I'd already been dreaming about being a race car driver. So I let Jeff drive the first night so I could take another week to prepare. I didn't want my dream to crash and burn on the first night, right? So after he got out there and he got first weekend, I thought maybe I'd be better for the next week. So we got up there at Westgate Speedway, got to race on that first Saturday night, and guess what happened? I won a race! I got the checker flag, I drove around the racetrack, parked out front, got my picture taken, and I remember thinking, Dale Earnhardt, look out! Here comes Randy McDonald, 16 years old, 72 Chevelle, one race. So I'd graduate from Curtis High School, I'd go to University of Waterloo, spend almost five years there to get this little iron ring. You guys know what that is? (laughs) Mechanical engineering, got a job offer from General Motors, told him I wanted to be a race car driver. (laughs) Told my mom and dad I wanted to be a race car driver. So here's this smart kid with an engineering degree and a job offer from General Motors that wants to be a race car driver. What in the world is that? In Canada. So I chased my dream, and I'd, I'd keep racing until 1994. I got my shot at NASCAR Winston Cup racing. I was working uh, just before that for John Andretti out of uh, Thomasville, North Carolina. And just after the Brickyard race with the, the Cup cars, he had, um, the whole team kind of fell apart. So I went to uh, practice my, my bush car at Rockingham. And I did pretty good. When I got back from the practice, the car owner said, "Hey." How would you like to go back there and run the cup car? If you pay for all the tires and you do it all yourself, we'll let you take the car. Okay, I'm not quite sure if that's how cup driving careers get started, but that was my only chance. So we got the, we got the car and we went to um, Rockingham Speedway. I had the engine builder, the assistant engine builder, the body man, the truck driver, and myself. We're talking about... Big time, as big as it gets. Earnhardt, Gordon, Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace. Weather didn't really cooperate. I got about 14 laps of practice, and as you know, you got to qualify to get in these races. If you're not fast enough, you go home. So on my 14th lap, we're running out of time. I'm not quite sure if I'm fast enough to get in the race. So what we call, we put the sticker tires on, we tape up the nose, and then you go out there and you do your bonsai run. You run as hard as you can, see how fast you are. So I got into turn 1, turn 2, and when you come off of Rockingham, there's a little dip and the track flattens out. I hit the dip, it flattened out, car went one way, I turned the wheel the other way, slammed the brakes, closed my eyes and slid all the way down the back stretch, hit the inside wall, boom. Yellow flag comes out, tow truck comes. (laughs) Not quite the start I was hoping for. So you tow the car back to the garage area and you got to walk through the garage area with your helmet, in your suit, and all your peers and all the big, you know, Richard Childress and Yates and Roush and all these guys, tracks yellow because of your wreck, so you walk through the garage. We get the car, we hammer down the hood, we fix the front suspension a little bit and we get that special 200 mile an hour duct tape out. (laughs) We tape it all up, it's time to qualify, they let us take our shot, and I make the race. So I was pretty excited. My first time trying to make Winston Cup, I made the race. I outqualified John Andretti in the Richard Petty STP car. So I thought my career was about to begin. It would take another two years before I'd get a Winston Cup ride. I'd sign a three-year contract to race for Diamond Rio and Haynes underwear and activewear. Had a purple car. <laughs> so Let's see, it was about 17 years to get there, three-year contract, and a funny thing happened. I was with an underfunded team, I had to do a lot of the work myself, hired a few people, had a $2,000 a week payroll for all my people. And uh, so, while well, I proved to myself that I could race at that level, simultaneously I proved to everybody else I couldn't. So I wasn't able to keep my job. So then I had a time to try to figure out what the next step was. But I love racing. I knew I could do it. I knew I could keep working at it. You guys remember in 2001? 2001 was when Dale Earnhardt got killed. Well, we were racing in the truck series. We'd finished sixth at Daytona the year before. We had our own truck team now. And so about 23 laps into the race, the car we are running three, three in a row, probably run about 15th, so there's some cars in front of us and a whole bunch behind us. So we figure we're pretty safe, just the three of us, and we don't want to be part of any big accident, right? But the guy that was just in front of me hit the apron, went sideways, came sliding right up in front of me, and you don't slow down very fast at almost 200 miles an hour. So I hit that car, and uh, as a result of that, Earnhardt was killed. Um, well, not as a result of that, but the same weekend, Earnhardt was killed on the Sunday, two days later, I'd find out that week that I had a serious problem. I had three herniated discs that were pushing on my spinal cord. I'd get to the next race, the second race of the year. I was sponsored by Left Behind. You guys ever read any of those books? So I was pretty excited. Hey, I got, I got this Christian book company to sponsor me. I'd get to the racetrack, find out that I wasn't able to race the truck because of, of this neck injury. So I'd go to Miami Hospital. They did more x-rays, checked it all out. So what ended up happening in 2001 is I ended up having to have neck surgery. So they went in the back here and they cut all this out. And what they do is they, they saw through the vertebrae, they pry it open, and then they stick donor bone in there because they wanted to open up the neck canal so the, the, uh, ver- the, um, the disc wouldn't be pressing on the spinal cord. So I can't explain the excruciating recovery of that. When I went in the operating room, I could hear all the power tools, you know, the drills and the saws. Before I went under, the surgeon, he's a really good surgeon, and he said, well, there's only less than 1% chance that something could go wrong. Less than 1% chance? I'm an engineer. That's like one out of 100. That's not good enough odds. How much less than 1%? So I had the fear, you know, if they just nicked the spinal cord a little bit, you know, I could be worse off than when I was. I had the pain of the recovery, had to sit out all year long, had to get somebody else to drive my truck, try to hold on to the business. 2001 was a rough year, didn't have the strength to do up my pants, had this Miami J collar to try to hold up my neck, but it didn't really work very well. Didn't get to race my car, 2001 was a tough year, looked like my career might be over. But an amazing thing happened in 2001 because it was absolutely, positively the best year of my life. The best year of my life. 2001, I realized a few things. If you had asked me earlier on in my career, you know, what are my priorities? Well, God first, family, and then everything else. And I knew enough as a believer that, you know, go to church give a tithe, don't take the Lord's name in vain, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. But really, I wasn't a very good person. And really, I wasn't a very good dad. And really, I wasn't a very good husband. And really, I wasn't a very good Christian. 2001, it's like God asked me, do you love me? See, there's that Bible verse that says, God will give you the desires of your heart, right? The desire of my heart was to race. The desire of my heart was to be the best race car driver. The desire of my heart was to be able to win a NASCAR championship, stand on stage, wave to the fans, thank the sponsors, and be able to thank God for giving me my dream and giving me my desires and my passions and my pursuits. But something about being incapacitated, something about the pain, something about the fear. God used that. So yeah, back at Camp Samac, when I was asked if I was a Christian, I made probably the most important decision of my life. Because even though I had my own Bible, even though I sung in the choir once or twice, even though my mom and dad were Christians, I realized I never made that decision. So on that day, I did accept Christ as my Savior. I did accept Christ as my Savior. Had my ticket to heaven, right? But in 2001, I realized for the first time, I never accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I never accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. We say we love God. We sing we love God. So, I was challenged to say, Do I really love God? How do I love God? How do I demonstrate that? How do I prove that to my family, my kids, my daughters, my wife? I love racing. That's what I love. That was obvious to see. You wouldn't have to talk to me very long to see that. So, third race of the year, we're at Bakersfield, California. I'm not racing. And uh, we're in the garage area, it's all open, it's a small racetrack, something like Westgate, Peterborough Speedway, but it's a NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series race, so you've got drivers from all around the country. So pitted beside us is a young driver from Upper State, New York, and just a little bit of short conversation while the cars are going through tech, we haven't gotten on the track yet, and uh, for some reason the conversation turns to the fact that this young driver, has three stones in his pocket. And he tells me the first stone is for good fortune. you got to qualify to make a NASCAR race, right? So you've got to get a good lap time or you go home. You don't want to come all the way from Upper State New York to Bakersfield, California and not get a fast enough lap to make the race. He didn't like to fly much, so one of these stones was for safe travel. I don't remember what the third stone was, but I remember, you know... Here's this grown man, race car driver, three stones in his pocket. A little more conversation. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's living with one woman. Another woman's got his kids, bag of stones, stones under the pillow. What would you say today if you met that person? Maybe today you're sitting here and you don't have stones, but you've got your job or you've got your bank account or you've got something that you're holding on to for good fortune and safe travels and whatever the third item might be today. So for some reason, you know, my normal response would be have a nice day. Oh, I think the driver's meeting's on. Maybe you need to go check out the track. For some reason, I stood there. And I started to ask him a few questions. Do you believe in God? Well, everybody believes in God, right? Right? What about the Bible? Is that really God's word? What's it say, man? There's, that's you know, this is a small print. You know, you get a big print, it's this thick. It says a lot of stuff. Who can know what it all says, right? But there's a point to the Bible, and there's some key verses, and the theme is consistent. There is a God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He created you and me. He created us for a purpose. The Bible says, for all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. So here's this guy, two different women, one's got his kids, the one he's living with, he's not married to. So I think he's pretty sure that's a sin. Falls short of God's standards. Yeah, we can do that. We want to live our own life our way. We don't want God to tell us how to do it, right? We just want God to bless us in what we do. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. So if we want to live our life our way, that's a sin against God. Because it obviously he's not our Lord and Savior at that point. We all know we're going to die one day. Maybe today, maybe next month, maybe next year, maybe a long time from now. But we don't know when. So we sort of accept that. The Bible says that if we die in our sins separated from God, there's a second death, a spiritual death. We die separated from God. The Bible says there's a heaven and a hell, and if we die in that condition, we go to hell. That's the bad news of the Bible. But the good news of the Bible is while we're or the good news of the Bible is while We are yet sinners. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Is he real? Is he real? Or was he the Son of God? Was he just a teacher? Can we trust the word that says he is born of a virgin, that he committed no sin, that he did miraculous things like healed the blind, raised the dead? He went to the cross, died on the cross. Buried, didn't stay buried, rose again. Did that really happen? John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten Son, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him, believeth in him. Does that say a short prayer, make a confession? Or is that except Lord and Savior? Shall not perish. Shall not perish. Go to hell. But have everlasting life. That means when we die physically, we can live spiritually forever and ever. So, I shared this, four simple biblical truths, four simple verses with this man at the racetrack in our holler and something happened. God took the truth of his word, spoke to this man's heart. This man made a prayer on his own. Before we went into the trailer to discuss that sort of thing, we left the stones at the back of the holler. When he is done praying, he got up with a step. We went out to the back. What about these stones? Throw them away. Throw them away. I'd find out in a short time, he got rid of the relationship he was in. He went back to the woman that had his kids. He married the kids. He became a husband and a father. Evidence that God changes lives. And God changed my life. So the prayer became instead of, I want to be a race car driver, I want to win races. God, give me the desires of my heart. God changed me to give me that glimpse. What if? What if my desire was to please God? What would happen? What would be the difference? What would be the difference? Well, the difference is you won't be ashamed of the gospel. The difference is when somebody asks you if God's real in your life, you'll be able to tell them what God's done in your life. The difference is when people hear the gospel, they hear your testimony, they can make a decision to accept it or reject it. 2001 was an amazing year. Because God set divine appointments and I was able to be there and participate as he did amazing things. If only it could stay like that all the time. But we live in a busy world. There's a lot of stuff going on and it's hard to maintain that. Try to always come back. I try to come back. How do I love God? How do I prove that? And I like things simple, and I try to simplify it. Be a blessing. If I can just be a blessing. Not so consumed with me. See, when you're in racing, it's all about the car, the team, going faster, beating everybody. Can I divert some of that passion away? Can I be a more godly husband? Lift up my wife? Can I be a more godly father? Encourage my kids? Spend time with them? So last time I was in Oshawa, March 07, and we are here celebrating my dad's life. That was an amazing opportunity as my dad passed from this life to experience again God's working in my life to lose my dad and again know without any doubt without any doubt that God loves me. So I'm here today for one reason and one reason only. I'm convinced that if God loves me that he loves you too. He loves each and every one of you. I'm convinced that this word is true. I'm convinced that God is so honorable that he'll give us the opportunity to make our own decision. And I'm convinced that if you say no today, it will be a lot harder to say yes tomorrow. And we all know the type of times we live in right now. And I'm just thinking, you know, a lot of people out of work, a lot of things even changing in Oshawa, a lot of pressure on our teenagers and our kids. How in the world would we ever want to do it without God? Why would we want to do that? So, use my dad's analogy, if you've never made this decision, just imagine for a minute that you have cancer. There's no hope, no more surgery, no more chemo, no nothing. You're done, your days are numbered. Well, here's an analogy of what it means to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Pretend now we can hook you up to a machine, and then I'll get hooked up to that machine. And we'll flip the switch. And when we flip the switch all your cancer cells will come out of you through the machine and into me. And then, all my good cells simultaneously will come out of me through the machine and into you. When the process is over, you have no more cancer cells. You have all good cells. You live. But what do I got right now? I got all your cancer cells. I die. You see the analogy? We want to live... Our own life. We want to do things our own way. But if we will acknowledge God, accept the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of our Savior, Lord and Savior, change our life, try to honor and please and love Him, God does it in a miracle, and He takes your sin and, like retroactive, it, transfers it back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes Christ's righteousness and He transfers it to you. That's how it works. Christ died on the cross so our sins could be forgiven. We make that decision, we get Christ's righteousness. We're adopted into the family of God. We get all the powers of this book, all the promises of this book. And like watching my dad in those last days, where he can make his final prayer Lord, I surrender all. Lord, I'm content. And in a little comic relief, say, now come get me. Now come get me. And I can give him a hug, and he can hug me hard, 100 pounds, just bones, and pull tight across my back and say, I love you, son. I love you, son. And I can say goodnight. And the next day he's gone it can be alright and it can be alright there's only one reason it can be alright because my dad loved the Lord and when he passed away from this life it's like an old junker car that car just coasted down broken down to the side of the road and he stepped out of that car slammed the door and went to be with our father in heaven And his body is just left broken on the side of the road. Nothing to do with him. He's not there no more. That body's used up. That's our hope. That's our promise. So Pastor Calvin's going to come. We're going to have a few minutes of reflection, some songs. And the challenge today is two things. If you've never made that decision, it's the best decision I've been able to race against Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, Mark Martin. I've waved to thousands and thousands of fans. I've been on TV shows. I've had my picture on T-shirts. But the best thing, the best thing that ever happened to me was that day at Camp Samac. The best thing. It beats finishing 19th last night. If you've not made that decision, don't leave here today without making it. And then, for those of you like me, you can say, I love you, God. You might have your ticket to heaven. You might want to check to make sure it's valid. Do that today. Do that today.